0: Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between the end of season seven and the beginning of season eight. And this episode is perhaps not for young ears. It's not too graphic, but certain things will come up which may be difficult for a parent to explain. So we are continuing our brief series on Vikings and Muslims and today we will be completing our discussion of the Risalah of Ibn Fadlan. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I strongly suggest you do so because this episode will make a lot more sense if you do. But if you don't want to, that's fine. You can just listen to this episode and go back and listen to the previous episodes later. Just a little bit of house cleaning before we get into our show. This episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. We so far have four seasons of Islamic History Exclusive discussing various topics such as the struggle between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, the life of Salahuddin, and two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. Most recently, we discussed the Umayyad government structure and how it had changed over the years. So if you need more Islamic history during this this final week of Ramadan, these final few days of Ramadan, consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. If you'd like to join, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify app, whichever one is your favorite, and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory or to my website islamichistoryexclusive.com. Either one, they will get you all the same information. One more thing before we start. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad Podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of the last messenger of Allah, wasalam, and it is available on all platforms, 100% free. All right, so with that, let's get into the show. In the previous episode, we discussed how Ahmed ibn Fadlan came across the Varangian Vikings. Ibn Fadlan was part of a diplomatic mission to the Volga Bulgarians in what is now Russia. The Volga Bulgarian king had converted to Islam, and he requested the Abbasid Caliph to send him some teachers, and Ahmed Ibn Fadlan was among those people the Caliph sent to the Volga Bulgarian king. So... Ibn Fadlan, he devoted a lot of time in his risala describing the funeral ceremony for one of the Viking noblemen. He had heard how these Viking funerals for high-ranking men were amazing spectacles and something that he should really witness and that sparked his curiosity. He really wanted to see one. So you can imagine his, I don't want to say happiness because the man did die, but you can imagine how eager he was to witness and record this funeral for this high-ranking Viking nobleman. Now, a poor Viking's funeral was very simple. He was just simply placed into a boat and cremated right there on the boat. But when it came to an important person, a nobleman, A high-ranking individual, there was much more pomp and ceremony. We're going to go through that soon, inshallah. It was a very elaborate ceremony, and Ibn Fadlan was very happy to finally witness this when one of the Rus, one of the Viking chieftains died while they were stopped at Volga, Bulgaria. So Ibn Fadlan begins by describing the preparations for the Viking funeral. First, they placed the deceased man into a shallow grave, and he waited there. I guess he didn't wait, he was dead. But they placed him in a shallow grave for about 10 days. During this period, the Vikings went about preparing the dead man's funeral attire. There was an old woman overseeing most of these preparations, and according to Ibn Fathlan, she was known as the Angel of Death. That's what the Vikings called her. So while they were preparing the man's funeral attire, they gathered his wealth, that is the Vikings, they gathered his wealth and his belongings, and they split them into three parts. One third of the man's estate was for his family. Another third was to pay for the funeral clothing and all of the pomp and ceremony that was going into his funeral. And then a third was to pay for mead, mead, M-E-A-D. The Mead was for the funeral celebration, and as we go through this description that Ibn Fadlan gives us, you will see that Mead is drunk very frequently and very often during this period. Now, Mead is an alcoholic drink. It is not permissible for Muslims to drink it. It is an alcoholic drink made from honey. Wine is an alcoholic drink made from fruits, usually grapes, but it can also be made from plums and apples and stuff like that. Beer is an alcoholic drink made from barley. Rum is an alcoholic drink made from sugar. Mead is an alcoholic drink made from honey. Ibn Fadlan discusses how these Vikings drank so much mead during this period of time. He said, They drink the mead to insensibility day and night. It often happens that one of them dies with his beaker in his hand. So the people are partying, they're having fun, they're drinking mead, but there's still business to take care of. They need someone to volunteer for ritual murder. I don't know how else to put it, but it is ritual murder. The family of the deceased man. They asked if anyone wants to volunteer to die with the dead man. They kept asking and either a young man or a young woman could volunteer But it is usually or it was usually a young woman who volunteered. And once someone made that commitment, once a young man or a young woman made that commitment, there was no backing out. A young woman did volunteer to go to Valhalla with the dead man. There's no backing out now. Two other young women were assigned to follow this volunteer all around from that point on up until the final Deed, and we'll get to that point soon. So, with this young woman, she is now committed to dying with the dead man. She's committed to going to Valhalla with him. The family then continued with the funeral preparations. So, the volunteer gets to drink and party all day and all night while the family continues with the funeral preparations. Well, finally, the day comes. The clothing is prepared. The, the mead has been drunk, and the family is ready to go to the next step of the funeral process. Ibn Fadlan witnessed the preparation of a ship that was to be the man's final resting place. So they hauled this ship out of the river, placed it on a wooden prop on the shore. Then they put a something like a couch or a bed on the ship with lots of fancy fabric and pillows, and then they went to go and exhume the the dead man, they went and got the dead man, the dead man out of his grave. And Ibn Fathlan witnessed this and he described the dead man or the cadaver, basically, as nothing had changed on him except his skin color. So they get this dead man out of the grave. He had already begun to decompose and they take off the clothes that he died in and dressed him in the fancy clothes that they had prepared for him. Then they took the dead man to the boat and placed him inside a tent which had been set up on the boat. And then they began filling the boat, filling the ship with all sorts of food and other offerings. And Ibn Fadlan describes it as follows. They also brought bread, meat, and onions and strewed them before him. Then they brought a dog, cleft it in two halves and laid it in the boat. Thereupon they brought all his weapons and laid them by his side. Then they took two horses, drove them until they perspired, then cleft both of them in twain with a sword and laid their flesh in the boat. Then they brought two cows, cut them in two likewise, and laid them in the boat. Then they brought a cock and a hen, killed them, and threw both of them into the ship. So they were filling his boat with things he would have used during his lifetime, such as his weapons and his dog and his uh, food and things like that. So then they get the girl who had volunteered to die with the dead man. And she went to each Viking tent and had relations with the leaders of each tent, I suppose. Don't know how else to put it. Afterwards, she was brought outside. And then the the Vikings took her right by the boat and lifted her up three times. And each time they lifted her up, she made a declaration. or She shouted something out. Let's go back to Ibn Fadlan. He said, I quote, Thereupon, I asked the interpreter what her actions meant. He said, When they raised her up the first time, she said, Behold, I see my father and mother. The second time she said, There I see all my deceased relatives sitting. The third time, she said, "There I behold my lord sitting in paradise, and paradise is fair and green, and around him are men and servants. He calls me, bring me to him." And so, with that done, the young woman was led to the boat, and she began to take off her arm and and uh, ankle jewelry and, and ornaments, and she gave them to the daughters of the old lady. That is the angel of death that we mentioned earlier. Then they lifted her onto the boat, a group of men carrying shields and wooden staffs. They come and they give her more mead to drink, get her even more drunk. And she drank two large beakers of mead. And during this whole time, she's just singing and partying while on top of the boat and getting drunk, drinking all this mead. But Ibn Fadlan, he noticed something. He saw that the young woman was starting to look unsettled. Here's what he said, quote, I saw then how disturbed she was. She wished to go into the tent, but put her head between the tent and the side of the boat. Then the old woman took her by the head, made her go into the tent, and also entered with her. So now, the men who had given her the drink, as I mentioned, they had shields with a bunch of staffs, wooden staffs. They began to beat their shields with the staffs, and this made a loud noise, a loud drumming noise, which was meant to cover up the sounds that were coming from the boat. Let's go back to what Ibn Fadlan says, quote, Whereupon the men began to beat their shields with the staves so that her shrieks would not be heard, and the other maidens became terrified. Then six men went into the tent, and all had intercourse with the girl. Then they placed her beside her dead lord. Two men seized her by the feet and two by the hands. Then the old woman placed a rope in which a bite had been made and gave it to two of the men to pull at the two ends. Then the old woman came to her with a broad-bladed dagger and began to jab it into her ribs and pull it out again, and the two men strangled her until she was dead." Unquote. And so now the girl, the volunteer, is dead, and the Vikings began to prepare to burn the ship. They began to gather wood and kindling and placed it all around the ship. Let's go back to Ibn Fadlan. He said, I quote, The closest relative of the deceased approached and took a piece of wood, kindled it, and then walked backwards to the boat, keeping his face turned toward the spectators, holding the burning brand in one hand and placing his other on his anus. He was naked and walked backwards until he reached the boat and set fire to the wood that had been prepared beneath the boat. Then the people came with kindling and other firewood, each having a brand burning at the end, and laid the stick in the pile of wood. Fire then spread through the wood and spread to the kindling, the boat, the man, the maiden, and everything that was in the boat. A strong and violent wind sprang up through which the flames were fanned and greatly enhanced. Unquote. The boat is burning. The ship with the dead man and now the dead girl and all of the dead cows and horses and dogs and all the other stuff that was on the boat. All that stuff is burning. And Ibn Fadlan is watching this boat burn And one of the Vikings starts talking to Ibn Fadlan. Ibn Fadlan obviously didn't speak their language, but he asked someone to interpret. And he realized that this Viking, this random Viking who had started speaking to him, was criticizing the way his people, that is Ibn Fadlan's people, the Arabs, he was criticizing the way they buried their dead people. Let's hear how Ibn Fadlan described this conversation. He said, they, the Arab communities are stupid. So I asked, Why? He said, You go and cast into the earth the people whom you both love and honor most among men. Then the earth, creeping things and worms, devour them. We, however, let them burn for an instant, and accordingly he enters into paradise at once in that very hour. His Lord sent the wind for love of him, so that he may be snatched away in the course of an hour. Unquote. So Ben Fadlon, after hearing this criticism from one of the Vikings, he reported that, yes, within an hour, the ship and everything that it held had been burnt to ashes and then was blown away by the wind. So after the ashes and the boat and all that stuff was blown away, the Vikings then went and built a mound where the boat had been. So the boat never entered the water. It was burnt while on land I know we may have seen some uh, movies. I know I've seen movies where the Viking person was placed into the boat and the boat was set on fire and then they were sent into the ocean or the river or whatever. Or in some other things, I think it was actually in Beowulf, the Viking or the dead person was placed into the boat and the boat was filled with kindling and then set into the river and then they dipped their arrows into like, um, I don't know, some sort of oil or whatever, set it on fire and then launched arrows at it. That's probably make-believe. I'm going to have to go to Ibn Fatherland's way of doing things. I think it would be very risky to try to shoot arrows, burning arrows at a at a boat and hope, hope to hit it and that it all sets aflame. So I think this is probably the way that it really happened. And Allah knows best. But in any case, so the boat's gone. The ashes are gone. They build a mound where the boat had been. And then they erected a large wooden plank on the mound. And they wrote on the plank the dead man's name, and the Viking king. We'll talk about the Viking king in just a few moments. And so now, with the dead man gone and the ceremony over, Ibn Fadlan reported that the Vikings began to leave. I don't know if they continued on their journey going somewhere else, or if they turned back and went back home to Sweden, or wherever they were up in the north. But remember, they were visitors to Volga, Bulgaria. They were not invaders. That was not their home. They just stopped to resupply, do some trading, and go on about their way. And so Ibn Fadlan ended this part of his Risala by describing the Viking king. Now, he never saw the Viking king, as far as I can tell. The Viking king wasn't traveling with this group of Vikings that came to Volga, Bulgaria. Instead, he most likely heard this, and this is me speculating, but it kind of makes sense. Most likely, Ibn Fadlan Heard about these trace of the Viking king from some of the other Vikings there with him. So what comes after this is probably just hearsay on Ibn Fadlan's part, but Allah knows best. It probably was true. So he goes on to say that the king, the Viking king back home in Sweden or wherever, had four hundred men who were his most trusted and heroic knights. These were like his personal—I don't want to say companions, but these are like his. Yeah, I guess you could say companions, but these are his closest guys, the ones he could, he could count on the most. And when the king died, these 400 men were going to die with him, just like that maiden died with that nobleman. They were, they were bound, honor bound to die along with their king. As he went on to describe the king, he mentioned how the king never walked and spent most of his time sitting on his throne. Kind of weird. Look, this is the way Ibn Fadlan describes it, okay? When he had to use the bathroom, he didn't like go somewhere else and use a bathroom, a basin or bowl was brought to him and he used his bathroom right there in his throne room with his 400 men all around him. When he um, had relations with his slave girls, it was right there in the throne room with his 400 men all around him. If he did have to go somewhere, if he had to do some traveling, he didn't walk out to the stables and get on his horse. No, the horse was brought to the throne room and he mounted the horse right there from his throne. He went on ahead and took his trip and when he came back, the horse came right back to the king's throne where he dismounted and went back to sitting on the throne. He didn't meet with the people. He didn't lead his army in battle. He had trusted officials and representatives to do all that stuff for him. This is a weird way, but that's the way Ibn Fadlan described it. All right, so that really ends this part of Ibn Fadlan's recital, which is much longer than this, but this is the part that we're concerned about, the part talking about the Vikings that he met in Volga, Bulgaria. Now, as I mentioned previously, I think in the previous episode or maybe the one before this one, Ibn Fadlan's Risala was made into a novel and that novel was then made into a movie. The novel was called Eaters of the Dead, written by Michael Crichton in 1976. Michael Crichton is the same guy who wrote Jurassic Park, which also became a movie. I'm sure you may have heard of that one. The movie that was based on the book came out many years after the book was written. The movie, it was, it was renamed to The 13th Warrior. It starred Antonio Banderas and it was released in 1999. I did see this movie many years ago and I remember being somewhat upset about it. I didn't know the story of Ibn Fadlan back then like I do now. I didn't like the way they portrayed Ibn Fadlan, but I didn't have any uh, historical evidence to to um, compare it to. I do now, though, so alhamdulillah, we're going to talk about this just a little bit before we wrap up this episode. Now, according to Wikipedia, I did see the movie years ago, decades ago, really, but according to Wikipedia, this part I didn't know, the novel Eaters of the Dead and the movie upon which it was based, that is The 13th Warrior, It actually combines elements of the uh, Norse saga, Beowulf, and Ibn Fadlan's *Risala*. They're combined together. So because of this, there is very, very little historical accuracy in this movie. If you want to watch the movie for fun, that's up to you. However, if you're trying to get some history out of this movie, don't. (laughs) You're wasting your time, okay? The first 20 minutes of the movie are somewhat similar to what we've mentioned so far. There is a scene where Ibn Fadlan witnesses the young girl being lifted up several times before being killed. There is that. There is a scene of the Vikings spitting into and sharing the same bowl that we discussed in the previous episode. Those things are there. But there are so many inaccuracies. I can't help but think that... Some of, these things were, some of these things were just really, it just, just didn't have to be done. You know, they just, didn't have to, they just didn't have to do this, okay? I don't want to say the wrong word, but they, they irked me. They really made me upset. Anyway, so the movie says that Ibn Fadlan was sent as an ambassador to Volga, Bulgaria as punishment for messing with another man's wife. Nothing about him going to teach Islam Nothing about vulgar bulgari converting to Islam, no. He was sent there as punishment for adultery. Maybe not adultery, but for fornication at least. Which I think is such a low thing to do. They could have just said that he was going there to teach them, or to teach Islam. I don't see why that was such a big deal. But instead they say he, he was sent there as punishment for messing with somebody's wife. They also said that Ibn Fadlan was a poet in the Caliph's court. Now, we mentioned already in the previous episode that Ibn Fadlan was not simply a poet. Now, he might have been a poet. A lot of people were poets back then. There were a lot of Muslims who wrote poetry back then in Arabic, and poetry was a big thing. It's a big thing now. It's a big thing back then. There's nothing wrong with being a poet per se, especially if you're doing it in, in, um, in worship of Allah, praising Allah and praising his messenger. Those things are fine. But to say that he was a poet... Instead of saying that he was an Islamic scholar and a scientist, that's what he was. He was a scholar, an Islamic scholar, a scientist. He was a scribe. He was also a warrior. He has spent time as a scribe for a general. He was more than just a poet because I don't know. It just seems so. Ah, uh, I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but it just seems like such a Hollywood thing to do, you know? A few other inaccuracies. This wasn't really that big of a deal. This is more of a movie trope thing to do, But he was traveling with a companion named Melchizedek. And first of all, Melchizedek is not even an Arabic word. That's Hebrew, comes from the Bible. It's not, a, it's not an Arabic word. It's not an Arabic name. But this figure, who never traveled with Ibn Fadlan, this figure was there for exposition purposes. It was somebody, it's a, it's a common movie tool, or sometimes, I guess, a storytelling tool, where you create a figure to explain... You create a character, not a figure. You create a character to explain to another character, but in reality, they're explaining to the audience. They're explaining to the reader or the person watching the movie. So this character named Melchizedek was created for exposition purposes. Another inaccuracy, just in the first 20 minutes of the movie, they have him traveling north to the Viking lands... With the Vikings, there's a whole process of uh, the old lady, the the angel of death, did some fortune telling. I don't have to get into all that stuff. I'm not going to get into all that stuff with you. Suffice it to say, he wound up traveling with the Vikings back to their homeland. In the movie, that is. But uh, of course, we know that that's not true. And he also didn't travel by himself. He was a, He was part of an entire embassy. He was part of a diplomatic mission. But the movie took lots of liberties. My suggestion... If you just want to watch a movie because you want to get upset like me, you want to have something to be angry about, you want to rant and rave about the, the uh, inaccuracies and the biases of Hollywood, go for it. But if you try and get some history, avoid it. The movie doesn't have much history in it. Other than those few things I mentioned about the young girl and the Viking spitting in the bowl, the rest of it is really make-believe. So... That's going to do it. That's going to conclude our series on Vikings and Muslims. All right. So in the next episode, inshallah, by the time this next episode comes out, Ramadan should be over. We'll be heading south. We're going south to Africa, not to South Africa, but south to Africa. And we are going to discuss the Sokoto Caliphate. Inshallah. I hope you'll be there to join me and I hope you enjoy the next episode when it is ready. And I hope to have it for you soon, inshallah. But until then, assalamu alaikum.